Jesus does change everything. Well, I'm happy to be back with you after being away. We, my wife and I were in Spain, as you might know, and I'm so thankful for those that continue to lead, preach, and do the work here at the church. One of the things, if you've ever been in Spain, one of the things that you'll discover is that they're very proud of their hams. They have these really fancy cured hams, jamón ibérico, jamón serrano, that have been aged uh, and cured for a long time. And so you go to almost any market, as you can see in this video, and you'll see these ham legs that are, that are hanging there. And then you, you'll see uh, someone that will carve these paper-thin slices, and they will put it in the tapas, which is like your appetizers, and, and they have like a menu that is full of different kinds of ham. And one of the things about this culture, they've been preparing ham like this for hundreds of years, way before refrigeration. And so they would so get these ham legs and they would cover them with salt and they put them in some kind of a room that has ventilation, uh, no refrigeration, and they receive from the climate of the Mediterranean Sea and they stay there for one, two, three years. And so by the time they come and serve it to you, this, this ham has been around, this ham leg has been prepared for uh, a couple of years and they're very proud of it. The taste is very distinct. I wish I would have brought you some for you to taste, but it was kind of expensive, so I didn't. Uh, but, uh, but here's the thing, the, the one element that gives it a flavor and that preserves it without refrigeration is salt. They just cover the thing with salt and the salt begins to work its flavor through the ham and it begins and, and it preserves the ham for a long time so that it's just at room temperature. They don't put it in the fridge. It's just out there in the marketplace and, 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 uh, and you serve it and eat it like that. Well, Jesus said something very interesting about salt in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. I'll read it uh, for you. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus makes this declaration to his followers. His followers are the salt of the earth. You and I who follow Jesus are also the salt of the earth. This is really not a command. It doesn't say be the salt. It says you are the salt. It is a declaration of something that we are in Christ. And we know that, that salt adds flavor and it preserves the meat, it preserves the food. So we are agents of good flavor for the world. We are agents of preservation for a world that's in the process of decay. We have been in a series that we've called Gospel, It Changes Everything. And we've talked about how the gospel changes any person who will believe. The, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for anyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God that changes the family. The gospel is the power of God that changes the church. The gospel is the power of God that changes the community as we serve people. And then last Sunday, Pastor Nick Maddox, our guest, told you that the gospel changes the workplace because it changes the worker. Today, I wanna to talk to you about how the gospel changes the public square. And so this vivid metaphor of believers as salt of the earth tells us that Christ has given his followers the ability to make a redemptive difference in the world. We have received redemption. We have received salvation, but we're also agents of that redemption. The gospel 
It's not meant to stay, stay within the confines of the four walls of the church. The gospel is not meant to only stay within our soul and spirit. The gospel is to flow from every believer into the world. So what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? I'm glad you asked, because I have a couple of things to share with you today. A couple of two, three things, or four. Because we're the salt of the earth, first of all, we should pray for his kingdom to come. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that our prayer should be that the rule of Jesus would come in our hearts, it would come in our families, it would come in our community, it would come in our state, in our nation, and in the world. Now, we know that the kingdom of God will not be fully established until Jesus returns. One day Jesus will return and he will establish his kingdom in all perfection. But until he does, he tells us that we should pray for his kingdom to come. Until he does, we keep asking for that rule to be extended, to be established in our lives and in our world. Daniel lived in Babylon. It was a pagan place. Daniel and his three friends were the only believers. They were a minority group of people in a pagan environment. And one of the things that Daniel committed to do was to pray. He prayed. He prayed even when it was illegal to pray. He spent more time praying than he spent time complaining that prayer was illegal. He prayed three times a day and when he was found out, he was thrown in the den of lions. And his prayer worked there too. Daniel was faithful in prayer. Paul, much later, urges Timothy and the church to pray for those in authority. Look at what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says. 1 Timothy 2, 1 says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. The Bible tells us that as salt of the earth, one of our roles is to pray for those in authority, to pray for governors, to pray for presidents, to pray for congresspeople, to pray for judges, whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, whether we vote for them or not, we ought to pray for them uh, in this kind of a way. And so as the Bible encourages us to do that, uh, we might say, well, yes, but the world is in such bad shape. We need to do more than pray, don't we? We can't just stay in the prayer closet all day long. And I agree with you. But I also agree with the person that says, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. I'll say that again. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Before we take action, before we speak, before we post, we pray. Because with the salt of the earth, we pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Secondly, because we're the salt of the earth, we possess the ethical standards of Jesus. This declaration of Jesus to his disciples that they are the salt of the earth is followed by some ethical standards. 
by, by the way that they should believe and live. It's part of what we call the Sermon of the Mount. And, and Jesus is setting up something different from what people have known in their religious circles. He states it in verse 20 of Matthew 5. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that must have blown the disciples' mind because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the, the Bible experts. They understood the Bible. They understood the Torah. They knew its intricacies. They respected it. They honored it. They, they, they tried to live by it. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not going to know what the kingdom of God is about. See, the Pharisees and the religious teachers had their religious and their political convictions. They had their understanding of what the kingdom of God was about. But Jesus says, they missed it. They missed the heart of God. They missed the kingdom of God. The ethical agenda of the Pharisees was not the ethical agenda of Jesus. And here's, here's the thing we must take away. Listen, you can be very religious. You can have good doctrine. You can have good values and be so far away from the heart of God. That's what was happening here. And so we must be intimately <clears throat> familiar with the agenda of Jesus more than any other agenda. Jesus gives us a sample list of the standards that he expects here in the Sermon on the Mount. He follows a formula that goes like this. You have heard that it was said, this is the understanding that people have had, but I tell you, this is really what God wants. This is really God's heart. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. You've heard that it was said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a, a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife exposes her to adultery. You've heard that it was said, do not break your oath, but fulfill the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. You've heard that it was say, said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if anyone hits you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one. Well, that's hard. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. See, the Pharisees were committed to the letter of the law, but Jesus wants followers who are committed to the heart of God. It's not just the, the legalistic check marks of saying, I already did this, but it's the pursuit of, of wanting to, to, to love God and to be followers of Jesus. If we were to summarize what Jesus says here in these statements, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, I, I could give you six principles, six things that could make a great platform for running for office. The first one is that human life is sacred and that we should treat everyone with dignity. That's the whole idea of, of what's behind the do not murder commandment. The second one is God's design for sexuality. It should not be guided by our desires or by our impulses for our heart is sinful. It should be guided by God's design for it. The third one is that marriage is sacred and we should uphold it and honor it just the way God meant for it to be.
The fourth one is about honesty and integrity. It should characterize all of our dealings. Our yes should always mean yes, or our no should always mean no. We shouldn't have to preface our things by oaths or promises, or I tell you because God is my witness, or I'm not lying, or I, I swear, or I cross, or whatever I, I have to do to prove to you that I'm telling you the truth. Listen, if you have to preface when you're going to tell the truth, you know, even people, I, I know people have a habit, and, and I understand, but even people that say, you know, can I just be honest? And I'm going like, have you not been? Can I just be honest? Dude, you should always be honest. You should always tell the truth. Uh, fifth, mercy and peacemaking should always precede revenge and hatred. The world is so full of hatred. Social media is, is full of vitriol and, and hatred and meanness. And, and Jesus says, mercy, turn the other cheek. They take your coat, let them, let them take your other coat. That's hard, I know, I get it. But that's what Jesus said, I'm not saying it. And then he says, love everyone, your brother and your sister, your neighbor, and even your enemy. Love everyone, even those who you don't agree with, even those on the other side of the aisle, love them. Because we're the salt of the earth, we must be familiar with the ethical standards of Jesus and possess them. And we should evaluate all other agendas and all platforms through the agenda of Jesus. Listen, as believers in Christ, our primary loyalty is not to the elephant. Our primary loyalty is not to the donkey. Our primary loyalty is to the lamb. Now, I'm not saying that we should form a third political party. Don't, don't get me wrong. Some of you got to vote Republican. Some of you got to vote Democrat. All I'm saying is vote through the lens of Jesus. Vote through the agenda of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Thirdly, because with the salt of the earth, we provide a visible testimony to unbelievers. Although the way that we live is based on our convictions, God demands more from us than just good moral values. While we possess the ethical standards of Jesus, we must remember they're not just theoretical platitudes. They are practical ways of living. To be the salt of the earth means to, to live in a way that's Christ-like. And because we are the salt of the earth, we don't just uphold biblical values and convictions, we live them out. We treat people with dignity because we believe in, in the sacredness of human life, because we believe that people are made in the image of God. We, we, we honor our marriage. We tell the truth. We, we do all these things and we apply them to our lives. Few things are more powerful in an unbelieving world than a living testimony. You can yell and argue to you're blue in the face with people and people are not going to change their mind. But when they see the difference in you and me, when they see Christ in you and me, that's powerful. That's different. And that's really what our trip to Spain was about. Some of you know that Monica and I went, went to Spain uh, for about 13 days and we're so thankful for your prayers, your encouraging words. Uh, we were there to I encourage and work alongside believers 
in their work. And here uh, we are in front of this Gaudí Cathedral called Sagrada Familia or Holy Family, which is an incredible work of art. Uh, we were there in Barcelona. And some of you might say, why Barcelona? We go to so many places. We go to the Philippines and we go to the Amazon and we go to the Republic of Georgia and we go to other places to serve Chiapas. Why Barcelona? Well, uh, let me just give you some, some quick facts. Catalonia is a country in north uh, east Spain that is part of the Spanish kingdom. Uh, they have been around for a long time. They have their own language. They speak Catalan. They also speak Castilian, which we call Spanish. Um, but they're considered one of Europe's least reached people groups. There is a lot of strife and political tension. We felt it in the church. We felt it in the subway because the Catalans want independence from Spain and the Spaniards think that's silly. And so they're always arguing and flying different kinds of flags to prove what side they're on. But here's the important thing. One out of every five people in Spain are self-professed atheists. And on top of that, on top of the 20% of the population being atheists, a lot of them are agnostics. A lot of the people I talk to, elderly people, said, I don't believe. I don't know if I believe. I don't know if there's a God. I don't know that I can trust the Bible. There are 450,000 Muslims in Catalonia. That's 7% of the population. Catalonia has the largest Muslim population in Europe by percentage. For example, in a city of 6.5 million people, there are only 25,000 evangelicals. That's 0.3% of the population. Someone has said that there are more evangelical Christians in Iran than there are in Catalonia. So you can, you can feel the sense that the churches there are small and struggling and that sharing the gospel with people, whether they're Muslim or Catalan, we, we had an interview with, with a Muslim person that became a believer and with a Catalan person that became a believer and we, we asked them how long it took and it took years for them. And so these churches are there and, and they're small and sometimes they're struggling and so we went to encourage them. The first church that we went to was Esglesia Batista de Badalona. It's a Catalan church, you can see the languages there. Um, they gave Monica a coffee mug that celebrates their 65th anniversary in that building. Uh, and we connected with that because Calvary is 65 years old. So we're like sister churches from the same class or something. Uh, and then we, we did a conference, a leadership conference to encourage the leaders, lay leaders and pastors. And about seven churches were represented there. And so here are the pastors of those churches in the front. We asked them to come to the front, these Catalan pastors, so that we could pray for them and encourage them. I got to preach in that church the following day, uh, and it was a privilege to, to encourage them. It's a church that is diverse. There are Catalan people. There are Latin American people from, uh, from different places. There are Brazilians uh, and Cubans and people from uh, Venezuela in other places. And so they're, they're trying to figure out how to be this diverse church with immigrants. And, and we got to encourage them. And then we got to spend some fellowship time with Pastor uh, Claudio and Erika. These are Brazilian people. They came from Brazil to pastor a Catalan church. They don't even speak Catalan. They only speak Spanish. That sounds like Portuguese. Uh, but we got to, they were so thankful for our visit. We got to pray with them. We got to encourage them and they send their greetings 
to you. So that was our time at that church. Then part of the work that we did with people there was to help them serve immigrants. So we told our home group here uh, uh, in, in McAllen Mission, we said, they're asking for baby clothes, for one-year-old clothes. And so our home group was so generous, we filled up a large checking bag full of baby clothes that we took over there to a clothes closet and some Arabic Bibles. And, and uh, we, we got to prepare this place where uh, people could come into a, a place like a store and pick their clothes out for their families and, and they, they could hear about God's love. And then um, we, uh, we also prepared some food bags. Our, our home group gave generously so we could fi- buy food for people who are laid off. Inflation in Spain is crazier than here. And so people just can't buy a loaf of bread. And so we prepared some bags with, with food. And then we made appointments with families to deliver them. And we met them at a meeting point. We asked them how they were doing. We tried to assess their spiritual condition. We prayed for them. And then we kept them in contact with the local workers so they could continue to do the follow-up work with them. And so uh, that was our work in Barcelona in a few, uh, uh, just in a few slides. And then we were supposed to spend a couple of days in Madrid doing some R&R, but it turned out to be ministry and, and we're okay with that. We were hosted by Elizabeth Suarez, who uh, is coordinating the social ministry to immigrants uh, of the Baptist churches in Madrid. And, and she was sharing with us the struggles, the challenges, and we were able to encourage her. Monica was even able to pick up a recipe from her uh, while we were there. And then uh, they invited me last minute, this wasn't part of the plan, to preach uh, at a church in Madrid. And I was so honored to be able to do so at a church plant just starting also a very diverse church of, of uh, Madrileños and immigrants uh, from other parts of the world. And so Pastor Fernando Mendez here in the next picture sends his greetings. Uh, thanks us for, thanks you for allowing us to be there. And then the next pastor of another church, Pedro and Esther Gil. Uh, so uh, that was our time in Spain to encourage the leaders in Spain where Baptist churches are few and small, where there are so many atheists and agnostics and Muslims and the current is, is flowing away from the gospel to tell these people remain faithful and live out your testimony in a visible way. When all these unbelievers, whether they're atheists or agnostics or Muslim or Catholic or, or Jehovah Witness or Mormons, whatever they are, <clears throat> when they look at you, let them see Jesus. Let them see hands that serve and hearts that love. Provide a visible testimony to unbelievers. Our friends in Spain are the salt of the earth. And we just went there to shake up that salt shaker and help them be effective. We can provide a visible testimony to unbelievers in Barcelona and in Brownsville, in Madrid and in McAllen, can't we? And then fourth and last, we, because we are the salt of the earth, we participate in the democratic process. Not all believers in history have been able to do that. Not all Christians today in the world live in, in a place where they can practice <clears throat> their freedom to vote and participate in a democracy. But we're blessed, aren't we, to live in a democracy. And we have a salt stewardship. 
I'm almost done. <coughs> Excuse me. I believe that, that Christians should vote. <clears throat> I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. That's not my job. You should vote your conscience. You should vote according to the agenda of Jesus. But you should vote. It's part of, of the privilege and responsibility that we have. <clears throat> if you feel, feel led to run for office, we, we need people who, who will be peacemakers, who will be instruments of justice in a world that, that is evil and unjust. And participating in a democratic process, <clears throat> excuse me, also means that we should speak out, that we should advocate. And some cases maybe lobby. You are the salt of the earth, <clears throat> but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. One of the things that I'm very grateful for, and I, I hope you're grateful for it too, in our uh, Texas Baptist Convention, is we have an office called the Christian Life Commission. The Christian Life Commission of our convention deals with ethical issues. They speak to, to churches about <clears throat> things that have to do with abortion and LGBTQ issues and racism and immigration. And then we also have representation in Austin. We have very sharp attorney, Christian attorneys in Austin that speak to legislators that, that advocate for things that are just and for things that represent the heart of Jesus. Uh, recently, Dr. Katie Fruget was celebrating the progress that has been made as, as they've been working for a long time in the issue of abortion. And she said, we, we celebrate the progress that we've made, but we have a lot of work to do. She said, we have worked to make abortion illegal, but now we need to make it unnecessary. And we need to make it undesirable. She said, we're pro-life, not just pro-birth. That means we believe that human life is sacred from conception to birth to childhood, and that the church is a responsibility to maintain the dignity and the sacredness of life, regardless of where the baby or the child or the adult is. We have a lot of work to do in in areas of foster care and adoption and crisis pregnancy. But, but we let something guide us that we call Imago Dei. Imago Dei means the image of God. We believe the Bible says that, that every human being was made in the image and likeness of God. And that means that human life is sacred because we are image bearers. Every person, every person that you see is an image bearer. They bear the image of God, and that's why their life is sacred. That's why they deserve dignity. So when we understand Imago Dei, it guides our understanding of abortion. It guides our understanding of murder. It guides our understanding of immigration. It guides our understanding of the vulnerable, of the elderly, of, of how to educate children. Imago Dei makes a difference in the way we deal with all of those issues. And what a joy it is to support the work of the Christian Life Commission. When you give here at Calvary, you're supporting that advocacy work in Austin. Because we're the salt of the earth, we participate in this process. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. The idea of salt losing its saltiness is really inconceivable. But it is true that sometimes churches 
have lost their effectiveness. And I pretty much ran out of time. I know there are three things if you're following the notes that you're waiting to fill in the blank. And I'm just going to say them real fast because I'm out of time. Churches that have lost their saltiness, first of all, compromise Jesus' values. I wish I could say more about that. I'll just make that statement. Secondly, they conform to the world's behavior. And thirdly, they consort with civil government. And I'll just say this. We're supposed to participate in the democratic process, but we're never supposed to be one with government. Our tradition is a tradition of a free church in a free state. The church shouldn't be under the state because he has one Lord that is Jesus. And the state shouldn't be under the church because we don't want to violate the conscience of people. People are free to answer to the gospel directly. And so a free church in a free state is our ideal and what we work for. Our Baptist forefathers died for that ideal. And so as we think about this idea, the gospel makes a difference in the public square because with the salt of the earth, we pray for his kingdom to come. We possess the ethical standards of Jesus. We provide a visible testimony to unbelievers and we participate in the democratic process. Listen, the world needs the flavor of Christ. The world needs a preserving agent that keeps it from decaying morally. The world needs redemption. So let's be salt. Stand with me. Father, I thank you for your word and your reminder of who we are in you. I thank you that in a world that seems hopeless, where the headlines are discouraging, where there's evil and injustice and when things seem to be upside down, that you are still our hope and that that hope can be lived out through your people as the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Help us, O oh God, to be faithful in that. Forgive us when we haven't. Forgive us when we've been an obstacle rather than an instrument of peace. Forgive us when we have detracted from you rather than drawn people to you. And help us to point people to you. As you think about your response this morning, I want to encourage you. Maybe there's a commitment you need to make. Maybe there's something specific that God has asked you to do today as you hear his word. Make that commitment. Some of you may feel led to come to the front and pray. Pray for our city. Pray for our country. Pray for the world. You can certainly do that. Maybe there's someone here who's never met Jesus. You're not the salt of the earth yet because you've not given your life to Jesus. And today you want to say yes. Yes, I will follow him. Yes, I will make him Lord and Savior. Yes, I receive his forgiveness, his eternal life, his power to change. If you want to do that, you can pray that right now. Say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I receive your gift of your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. Maybe you want to follow in believer's baptism or join the church or, or just take a step. Whatever it is, this is the time to do it. Feel free to come to the front. Feel free to stay where you are. Pray, sing, but answer God's call in your life right now.